If you truly believe that you standing up saying, hey, I don't want you to sexualize my child or to confuse them with their gender before they even know how to read or before they can even drive a car, do you think that's a high ask? The bar is so low that what these parents are saying, me asking to not have that happen in a public school is gonna get my child ostracized or get me ostracized. My response to that is, if you truly believe this is where we are today, then you better speak up even harder. Because if you believe you simply asking for this very, very low bar is too much to ask, my question to you is, what kind of world is your child going to grow up in? You've enjoyed decades of freedom. You've never had to worry about this. Now, it is your cross to bear to ensure that your child has the same freedoms that you enjoy. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Today I'm talking with Alvin Louie. He is the president of Courage is a Habit. I originally met Alvin and found out about Courage is a Habit through Twitter. He's been active in Twitter spaces. Um, they have a website full of resources for parents and a podcast and their Twitter account. Um, I'll ask you in a moment to explain the full array of offerings, but I just want to share why I invited Alvin here today, which is that Alvin and Courage is a Habit are doing some really great work helping parents find the courage, the words, and the tools to stand up to the indoctrination of their children in the K through 12 system. And that's what we're here to talk about today. Welcome, Alvin. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Stephanie. I love your work. I love the way you put things. Uh, so it's a it's an honor to be on your uh, on your show here. All right. So why courage is a habit? What do you do and how did you choose the title? So uh, when I start speaking to parents here where I live in Indiana, uh, different groups and different events, I found that parents already know how to defend their children. We've been doing it for eons. Uh, an example I would give is if I, if your child or grandchild uh, was in a burning building and they were screaming your name, you wouldn't care what anyone called you. You wouldn't care what label someone gave you. And you would risk your life as a parent or grandparent to go and save your child. Every parent and grandparent on earth knows what that feels like. You wouldn't stop and say, let me go ask somebody what to do. But yet, if someone points a finger at the same parents and say, you're a bigot or a transphobe or some meaningless label, all of a sudden, you don't know what to do. And you have to come to a meeting in the evenings or on the weekends and listen to someone tell you to defend your child. And I, my reason for giving that is, is because it's not that you don't know what to do, it's that you've made fear a habit. Over time, you've let your kindness be used as a weapon. You've, been, you've let your kindness be weaponized to say, 
when you're trying to stand up for something like gender mutilation of children, someone will say, you're a transphobe, and then all of a sudden you stand down because you made fear a habit. You've actually listened to those things and absorbed it over time. So our theory is that if we give people enough tools and, and, and strategies to look past the gaslighting, to understand that the people that are doing this to children are not honest, they're not disingenuous, that courage will be a habit. That even if you're scared to say something, that you say it anyway, each time you get past that fear and your heart's coming out of your chest and you're like, I'm going to get called a name, I shouldn't say something. Each time you say it, even when you are fearful, it gets easier and easier each time until courage becomes a habit. So I have a question from a parent to start you off with, and I'm guessing you hear things like this all the time. Um, And that question is, I'm I'm passing it along as from a conversation earlier today that I was having privately. Um, Wonderful. I mentioned that I'd be talking with you and, and they want to know this. When you're a parent and you're starting to learn about the indoctrination in your kids' schools, but you're afraid of speaking out, um, you know, part of that fear is this fear of getting your head chopped off, right? The fear of being ostracized from the tribe. And that's, that goes back eons, right? It's so mm-hmm. primal. It's like, mm-hmm. I'm going to be rejected from the community. I'm going to be left to starve on my own. Um, and so how this parent was wanting to know, how do you get over that fear? And how do you take the initial steps toward finding like-minded people in your own community, not just online where, you know, it's easy to follow courage as a habit on Twitter and go and find like-minded parents around the country. But how do you start talking to other parents in your own kids' schools when Mm. you're afraid that, you know, you don't know where they stand and that you could say the wrong thing and get ostracized? Mm. Um, You know, your kids could be rejected from having play dates, right? It could have a ripple effect on your family. What do you say to that fear? Yeah, that's a... That's a very real fear. And so I really kind of have two things uh, to say about that because we do hear that every day, every single day, quite literally seven days a week. So I'll start with the, uh, if my child be ostracized, because that's usually kind of where that coming from. When they say I'm ostracized, what they mean is what if they take it on my child. If you truly believe that you standing up saying, hey, I don't want you to sexualize my child or to confuse them with their gender before they even know how to read or before they can even drive a car, that's a very low bar. You're not asking for a lot here. And parents forget, we've been so, what I said earlier, we've made fear a habit. We've gaslighted parents so much. I asked them, do you think that's a high ask to say, let's not put pornography in middle school? or to tell white kids that they're, they're oppressors? Do you think that's a high ask? The bar is so low that what these parents are saying, me asking to not have that happen in a public school is going to get my child ostracized or get me ostracized. My response to that is, if you truly believe this is where we are today as a culture and as a country, then you better speak up even harder. Because if you believe you simply asking for this very, very low bar is too much to ask, 
my question to you is, what kind of world is your child going to grow up in? So that means that if they don't agree that a man can get pregnant or a woman can have a penis, they cannot go open alone or walk into a grocery store or get a job or buy a house. That's where we're going. Because if you truly believe that's where we are, that's simply demanding that low bar to not sexualize your children will get you and your child ostracized, then take it to its logical conclusion. What's going to happen in five years? What's going to happen in 10 years? If you don't speak up now, if you do not have the courage to stand up now, your child will live on their knees. So it's far better for you to get ostracized now and give your child a chance at the freedoms that you've enjoyed. Because I assume that most of these parents that are asking this question, or the parents that ask you, they're I'm assuming they're grown adults. They're not teenage, they're not teenage pregnant parents, right? So you've now are 20, 30, 40, however, oh, if you have young kids, you're probably somewhere in that range. You've enjoyed decades of freedom. You've never had to worry about this. Now, it is your cross to bear to ensure that your child has the same freedoms that you enjoy. So if you shut up now, your child will not have a chance to stand up ever. That would be my answer to people that are uh, uh, afraid because that's exactly what it is. So part of how I hear you approaching that question, Alvin, is to say, don't worry about it being ostracized. Assume that you might be ostracized. On the one hand, you know, don't come at it defensively because you are just speaking about reality. You are just saying things that were so common sense 20 years ago that nobody need to, needed five to say ago. them. It was common sense five years ago. Right. Right. Even, even recently. If you said a man could get pregnant five years ago, someone would laugh at you five years ago. Everybody would laugh at you. But I hear you saying. Yeah don't fear the ostracization. You're not crazy and you're not asking for a lot. No. But even if you do get ostracized, parents, what's worse, you facing that ostracization now or your kids having no future? No future at all. And to answer the second part of your question, as I said, you know, there was, you said there was a two, second part where how do you find parents? The great majority in, in, in my, you know, working with parents across the country, um, most parents don't want this. I would say, thankfully, still. That may not be true in another 10, 15 years as you infuse the uh, younger generation with this ideology. But today, normal, sane parents don't want this, right? Who, who would want their child to be mutilated, whether chemically or, fit or, or, or by surgery, or to be told that their skin color matters, right? So, most parents do believe you or not believe you, agree with you. But the problem is someone has to have that courage to say, this is not right. And when you say that, you will find parents, okay, that will follow you. That's 100%. I can tell you that right now. We've seen it over and over and over again. Every time I go into a community, they'll say there are no parents. I'll say, you got to be the first. And I teach parents how to stand up, how to, you know, and sure enough, 30, 60 days later, they get eight parents, 10 parents, 20 parents, 50 parents, 100 parents. That's how it always is. Because most parents, obviously 99.9% .9 of parents don't agree with this. It's just that they're, again, just like you, the person asking, they're afraid. So you got to give that voice. Um, so be the first and you'll find that people will stand up and follow you. And teachers, there's a lot of teachers that don't believe in this. We never talk about that. 
So if you stand up, you'll get teachers being whistleblowers. They'll give you things that they're not that you don't have pre, pre uh, that you wouldn't be privy to. That's how we get a lot of our stuff. Teachers and different people within the schools, you know, love what we're doing, so they give us stuff. But we they wouldn't do it unless we led the way first. So lead the way, and you'll find allies. Um, but I would say the best mechanism to find like-minded people would be to um, start a Monster Liberty chapter. They have done an amazing work uh, in uh, having a structure where you have at least a logo and an umbrella uh, that you can fall under. So I would say go to monsterliberty.org and start a chapter in your community. And they at least get you started. And they have uh, good uh, guides and they have a new resource director that she's fantastic. And uh, they, they will help you uh, shorten your learning curve so to speak. This would be my highest recommendation. So let's talk about what some of these requests are that you say are really just such a low bar, right? You talk about how parents might not want their kids to see porn in middle school. Um, what are some of the kind of basic mm-hmm. requests, the things that like we've been saying, five or 20 years ago, we all assumed we could take for granted would be mm-hmm. just a part of uh, the child safeguarding that we all collectively participate in, mm-hmm. um, but that have been eroded. What are some of those requests that people need your support making of their schools? I would say the number one thing is parental rights. Uh, respecting that the parent is the ultimate authority in a child's emotional uh, and mental well-being. A public institution, like a school, is there for one thing and one thing only is academics. And that's it. If a child on the rare, rare occasion that a child is actually being abused, there's already been systems in place for the longest time for that. That's what they always lie to parents. Well, if we don't help children, acting as if 85% of parents are abusing their kids. And that's not true. We'll talk a little bit about that later today in terms of when it gets to the school counselors and things. But the most basic low bar ask is to say, we bring the parents in on anything outside of academics. The idea that a school keeps secret from parents should be zero. It should be zero. Today, that's not the case. The schools and school counselors, superintendents and social workers, they're swimming in K through 12, believing they know better. And the parents are just an inconvenience. So I would say the lowest bar is to say parents have the ultimate authority. You don't get to decide what you believe is right or not right. That's up to the parent's job. And that's got nothing to do with what happens in those seven hours. Besides the not putting porn in schools. The fact that we have to say that, Stephanie, all the time, it's shocking. Or, 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 or confusing a five-year-old, six-year-old, or eight-year-old, 10-year-old of their, of their sexuality or their gender, that would, that would land you in jail in any other time aside from the last like few years. All right. So for those who aren't familiar with the problem, mm-hmm. I mean, we're, you and I are just kind of diving in because we are, yeah. we've been in Twitter spaces together. We've sure, yeah. been in this world yeah. in our own ways, offering our- We're, we're a little bit of echo chamber, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, listeners who are familiar with this podcast know that I've covered the topic of 
uh, gender and indoctrination. So in episode three, I talked with a parent named Jennifer about how her own daughter was being indoctrinated, oh, including yeah. through her school um, at the at the ripe age of 10 yeah. um, into believing that she was some other gender. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and I've, I've talked to people who have been survivors of gender malpractice. But for those who um, – oh, and the other thing I've done is talk to um, Deb Philman on her oh, channel, yeah. The Reason We Learn. Um, but for those who either aren't parents, haven't been researching the gender and CRT issues obsessively sure. like you and I have, sure. or um, are just new to this subject, uh, they might, if they are still even listening, <laughs> be wondering <laughs> what the heck we're talking about. What the about. heck are they talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Are they talking about so a movie? Alvin, <laughs> talking about some dystopian movie? Is that what they're talking about? So Alvin, what the heck are we talking about? What is the <laughs> maybe, problem? Maybe you should edit this and put this, this in front of the episode first. Maybe. That's to be the opening question. What the heck are we I talking was, about? I would just dive in to some <laughs> random part of the discussion and then halfway through the podcast, I'm like, wait a minute, maybe we should explain this for people who don't know. Yeah, right. Yeah. We're, uh, you know, we're a good 20 minutes in here. So for anybody who uh, doesn't know what we're talking about, or if you end up editing this to the beginning, uh, here's the basic uh, description, I guess, what we're talking about. Um, K through 12 is not the same as what you were when you were growing up. I think your parents dropped you off as long as you did not fall into the wrong crowd, get into drugs, get kidnapped. You did your homework and you're probably pretty good, right? But unfortunately today, K through 12 has been uh, completely taken over by um, activism that seeks to brainwash children to believe that the country and all its system is oppressive and racist And they do that by dividing kids by either race or gender. The easiest way to divide kids is by gender, because when you sexualize kids early, you confuse them. And when parents push back, you can tell them your parents don't understand. That is a very uh, time-tested way to separate children from their families. And the way they do that in K through 12 today is through a Trojan horse disguised as mental health called social emotional learning. And this is why even as a parent who you may not know exactly what we're talking about, you see a big emphasis on emotions and mental health in your child's school. Everything's about safe and everything's about feeling accepted and equity and diversity and inclusion. You, if you have a child in public school, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Those words sound very nice and they sound, why? who wouldn't want diversity? Who wouldn't want inclusion? But the Trojan horse is that schools have always been welcoming and safe. You all went to public school. You know what I'm talking about. But the heavy focus on emotions, it's really their way of brainwashing children to believe that their identity is paramount to anything else. Academics take a backseat, respect and behavior, respect for each other and respect for teachers and respect for uh, the the country. Those things take a backseat. It's all about identity. And once you can separate children by identity through the guise of mental health, of course, you can move children any which way like a puppet. 
So if you're wondering why your child or your child's friends have such high anxiety and mental health and everything is so neurotic and all these things, and you're like wondering where that's coming from, it's coming from K through 12. Uh, wonder why gender is such a big, big thing. Pronouns are just a big thing. Those are all symptoms of what we're talking about, which is the Trojan horse of mental health, disguised as mental health, uh, through K through 12. You stated that so clearly, Alvin. Thank you. And when you say identity, I want to put that in quotes because okay. the word identity, yeah. just like the words equity and yeah. justice and inclusion, yeah. it's yeah. one of those words that's been redefined, Yeah. yeah. right? So in a classic sense, in yeah. psychology, identity refers to um, a an, an intangible but vital aspect of the self that develops over the course of a lifetime Yes. and uh, through experience. And identity tends to congeal in our mm-hmm. 20s. Um, adolescence is normally a time of a lot of experimentation with trying on different hats and, you know, the, the most kind of external signifiers of belonging to one identity group or another is kind of how we haphazardly stumble through adolescence and through identity experimentation. Right. And, and the developmental task, one of the developmental tasks of adolescence is actually not to foreclose too early on your identity. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, when does that ever work out well? You know, every now and then there's some genius who's incredibly gifted from a young age. And, you know, like, I, I don't know Neil deGrasse Tyson's life story, but I'm imagining sure. he was a physicist at age five and stuff. Right. You know? <laughs> right. You know? He like always knew what he was, yeah. Every now and then, right. Someone yeah. who's just so gifted yeah. and is on the same path from yes. an early age. Yeah. But for most of us, it's essential that our identity doesn't form too early. Think about sure. think about the person whose identity peaks in high school. You know, the the classic like yeah. he, he, the captain of the football yeah. team in high school, and that's yeah. like his life just never gets yeah. any better after that. That's right. I mean, yeah. it's tragic, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so identity is something that I don't think is a word we need to use with children. First of all, mm-hmm. it's abstract mm-hmm. at a time that. Um, kids don't even have the capacity for abstract reasoning. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that which it refers to right. is something that kids don't have yet and shouldn't have. Right. And there needs to be safety, ideally, in childhood to play around and try on different things without having to attach any narrative about the self to it, right? Mm-hmm. Because you, your sense of self needs to be, I am the one who is enjoying experimenting with tennis and violin, not right. I am a tennis player, I am right. a violin player, right? right? It's I right. am the one who is playing, I am the one who is learning, and right. that's a process, right? And through that process, you develop some virtues and some values, like I am a curious person, and that becomes part of your identity, Right. But um, when you talk about identity in the schools, it's quote unquote identity as defined by like, like Kimberly Crenshaw's work. Is that what we're talking about? We're talking about like intersectional 
labeling, right? Mm -hmm. So rather than like, I am a person who is curious and likes Mm -hmm. to explore as an identity, it would be, I am a fill in the blank, skin color, fill in the blank, gender, fill Mm -hmm. in the blank, socioeconomic status, fill in the blank, you know, ethnicity, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, I think what you're talking about when you talk about the so-called identity, Mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. that That defines you. It does. I love the way you put that. The don't foreclose on your identity too early. I want to remember that. That's a great phrasing, and it's a very it's a good imagery. I was having this conversation recently uh, uh, with someone on my team, and we we thought about how the people who are pushing this ideology uh, uh, for political and gains and children, they're taking advantage of two very natural. Uh, moments and moments in the child, in that child's, uh, a human being's uh, time. So um, when we get to that preteen teenager age, it's very natural for us to want to find autonomy from our parents because we, we don't want to live in a basement of the parents' house for all our life, right? And the other thing is what exactly what you said. At that time, they're finding their identity. Are they a musician? Are they an athlete? Are they goth? Are they this? Are they that? Are they changing their hair colors? And this, you know, because up to a certain point, your hope, your parents are your whole world. You know, when you're a toddler and then into the young age, and then somewhere about like preteen or so, you start looking for your identity. And that's okay because, but the parents, again, back to parents know best, they're the ones that know their child best. So you can have multiple children in the same household, but you got to give certain children a little bit more leeway than others, depending on their personality. So you try to draw that back and draw boundaries. So for example, if my son says, oh, you know, I'm 14 and I want to I wanna find my own autonomy. I'm like, okay, well, let's talk about that. What does that mean? Does you want to stay up later? You want to go out with your friends later? You want to, what does that mean? If he goes, I want to go live in Africa, I'll be like, well, probably not that, not right now, right? If my eight-year-old says, I want autonomy, I'll be like, okay, sweetheart. So what does that mean? Does that mean that you get to watch TV a little longer, when to brush your teeth? Not, I get to go stay overnight somewhere with somebody I don't know, right? But what these people are doing is that they're taking advantage of those two very strong pushers. And instead of allowing parents to draw the boundaries, they're just pulling the kids really hard one way or another. And when it comes to identities, instead of letting the child develop their identity through years of life and experience and trial and error and failure and all those wonderful things that we go through as human beings, they're not letting the child discover the identity, they're putting it on them. So to use your example, instead of saying, I play tennis, you go, I am a tennis player. And if you say, I'm a tennis player, and I walk up to you and I go, I hate tennis, and I think all tennis players are dumb. What I've done is I've insulted you in your core. I've now told you, Stephanie, I've now destroyed your soul because I think that all tennis players are stupid and dumb. And that's what they're doing to kids. You are this pronoun. You are trans. You are gay. You are black. And the moment someone says something remotely negative or even questioning something, it's now an attack on their character, on their very soul, which is why they teach kids words like, you're erasing me. I'm not seen. Whereas the way you're talking about, which is normally what human beings do, they say, I'm a tennis player, or I I play tennis, but I also play the flute and I also do this. So if someone says, oh, I think tennis players are dumb, you're not attaching yourself to it. 
Because that's not your identity. That's something that you do. Maybe you don't do it in a couple of years. So what they're doing to kids that are very young is that they're not letting them find their identity. They're putting an identity on them so that they can move them into different uh, groups that they can control. And it's very easy to do that by saying they want to erase you. This is why they keep telling parents, if you don't do this, they're going to kill themselves. And that's exactly what they're doing with the concept of identity. And this shift is both subtle and profound. So I'm thinking of a subtle subtle example that I saw recently. It was basically a show and tell assignment. Um, Every kid was given a little brown paper bag. This is like in a third grade class. A little brown paper bag with a note attached, just like a printed thing stapled to it saying to bring some things from your home that represent you or your culture, your family, your hobbies. Mm -hmm. And they use the word identity, right? That tell us about your identity. And it could be like, bring a fork because your mom does great Persian cooking, like, or, you know, it could be the smallest thing, but it's tell us about your identity, right? And I, I just thought, well, that is just so unnecessary. Like, Show and tell wasn't yeah. about identity, no, right? Yeah, it was yeah. about exploration. That's right. It was about like, you can be curious about this thing now and this other thing later, or you can bring something of your family's home culture if you have a strong culture at home that you want to share. Also, maybe you don't have to, or maybe you don't have a strong connection to culture. Um, but But the use of the word identity I I feel like we could get really into the weeds with that, though. I want to zoom back out because I had asked you to explain uh, what it is that we're really talking about um, to people who aren't familiar with this. So is there anything more um, that you wanted to say in response to that question? No, I think at a high level, I want parents to understand that K-12 through has largely become a political and sexual indoctrination training camp. Uh, Academics, academics. Behavior, excellence in behavior uh, is no longer what is expected. It's to create a generation of social justice warriors to uh, swallow whatever social contagion is prominent at that time. Uh, If they're seven today, maybe when they're 15, it'll be something else. It may not be BLM. It may not be the transgender cult. It may be something else. But the point is, if you prime them at a young age that this country is oppressive uh, and that all its systems, it's uh, oppressive and identity matters beyond all else and your feelings matter beyond all else. When they become teenagers and young adults, you can get them to be an activist on whatever it is, the social contagion you want them to distribute. If you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy, irritable, lethargic, stressed out, or unfocused, I'd want to do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep. You need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that. A demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits, for example. But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, look no further. I have just the thing for you. And since this is not therapy, but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. So I'm going to genuinely recommend that you check out the Pod Pro Cover by 8Sleep. 
It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. And let's talk about what the dangers of this are, because again, the language sounds so pretty, right? Social justice. It's like, you know, people who are just hearing these criticisms for the first time are like, what the heck is wrong with Stephanie and Alvin? They have some problem with justice. They have a problem with equity. I mean, this is why we get called bigots, right? Sure. Um, (laughs) Yes, language contaminations. It's beautifully done. Yeah. So, but let's explore what the consequences are, right? Because when you, for example, teach white children that they, by virtue of being born with a certain skin color and immutable characteristic, are inherently oppressive to other people, um, when you instill that belief, there's there's a sense I there's I am fundamentally evil, right? There mm-hmm. is something unchangeable about me. I was mm-hmm. born with original sin. It has this kind of like Catholic quality. It's a religion, to it, yeah. Right? And you can so never you atone start for with it. The guilt. Yeah. yeah. And then well, and then what it, if it is something that you can never fully atone for, then you're always in debt. Then yeah, you in. owe endless allegiance. And also, it's very tempting to be able to opt out of that. And I'm sure you and I would agree that one of the factors that has allowed for the transgender social contagion to be so viral is this emphasis on racial identity because all of these little white kids, you know, they're they're awkward, nerdy, geeky. Maybe they have their own background of trauma or bullying. You know, they certainly don't feel on top of the world. They don't feel especially powerful. Mm -hmm. They would love to feel more powerful. And kids Mm -hmm. are learning about power at that age, but they're being told that they have all this power and that it's bad power. Mm -hmm. It's evil power, right? And of course, there's a way to opt out of that. And of course, that way to opt out is going to be very tempting. And the way to Mm -hmm. opt out is to self-select into one of the other so-called oppressed demographics. That's right. Because then it gives you shelter. And, and I mean, we're not just making this up. Detransitioners have said this, right? Uh, Helena Kirshner, who I interviewed on episode eight, she's very public about this. Um, It's no secret that the pressure to identify as some gender other than what you are, Mm. and then to go on to body modification with real lifelong health consequences is partly coming from this sense of original sin associated with skin color. So there's this strong connection between critical race theory and 
the gender stuff. And so when we follow it to its natural conclusion, well, if identifying into this so-called oppressed class Mm -hmm. is your way of gaining social clout or protection from bullying or Mm -hmm. escaping Mm -hmm. these painful allegations of being so fundamentally evil, Mm -hmm. well, and then it leads to body modification. It Mm -hmm. leads to destroying your future fertility, ability to enjoy sex without pain, Mm -hmm. ability to reproduce and breastfeed, shortening Mm -hmm. your lifespan, weakening your bones, increasing your risk of cardiovascular diseases and cancers, early onset Alzheimer's, dementia, and schizophrenia. The list goes on. The consequences are real. You're a lifelong patient. So real. And the fact that there's even one person on this planet alive today who has said that this mentality that we're talking about has caused them to medically damage their body in Mm. ways that have had a devastating impact. Mm -hmm. The fact that even one person is saying that should make us all stop in our tracks, but it's actually thousands and thousands of people who are saying that. It is thousands and thousands of people that are saying that. Absolutely. And you're right. I, uh, I recently, you know, in September, we did a a thing about my observation, which uh, was validated last week. Uh, there was a study put out that between 2016 and 2019 by the uh, JAMA, uh, J-A-M-A network, it's a pediatrics network, that between 2016 and 2019, there was a, I want to say this right, 378% increase of children getting uh, mutilation surgeries. 378% between 2016 and 2019. You and I both know when the numbers for 2020 and 2021 comes out, it's going to be horribly destructive you know it's going to be very very ugly but out of the children the mi- when they say minors they mean 12 to 17 that's the age range and out of that 77.9 so almost 78 percent were white children so my question was why does the transgender cult largely capture the uh, white community more than anyone else and my question was to people Find me a Muslim or Chinese mother that drove their daughter to a gender clinic, smiling ear to ear with the double mastectomy scars around their daughter. You won't find that picture because that doesn't exist. So it, why does it capture the white children, white community so much? And it's exactly my, what we said was exactly what you said there is because you've made uh, white children feel like they're on the bottom of the social ladder. And the only way to get out of it isn't to get good grades or be uh, great in sports or music is to uh, identify with a victimhood group. The more oppressed, the better. But the problem with that is that once you get into things like pronouns, you get a dopamine hit because you get the love bomb, which is what cults do, the love bomb, right? A lot. That wears out. And now it, what, it's not just enough to be gay. You got to have the pronouns. And then the pronouns are not enough. You got to get the, the breast binders and the tucking. And then after that, when the dopamine hit wears off, you need a stronger hit. And that's when you get to puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and then eventually, very quickly, the surgeries. Because you need that dopamine hit because if you stop getting that hit, it means now you're just another white child. And that's so sad. That's so horribly sad because that's literally put on children. Children don't feel that way about themselves. Um, and, And all children are born perfect just the way they are. So you have generation now of white children that believe they need to mutilate themselves in order to be accepted and to be seen and to be heard and all those words that they use that no child uses on their own 
And that's exactly what it is because they believe that because they're white, there's some inherent evil about them. So in order to escape that persecution, they need to identify with a group, which is why the transgender cult largely impacts the white children more than any other race. 78%, almost 78% of children that got surgeries were white. That's why you never see a picture of a black mother or a Filipino mother or a Chinese mother or an Indian mother or a Muslim mother that drove their daughter willingly to get their healthy breast cut off. Why is that? Do you think there are also protective factors in some of these cultural communities? I mean, you, you start off saying like Chinese or Muslim families. What cultural factors do you see in other communities that um, enable parents to feel empowered to be courageous in the ways that you talk about? Um, I would say probably two things. The first one is that most of the ethnic cultures have a very strong father figure. And if it's not, even if it's not, if it's not specifically father figures, it's male figures, um, largely uh, white uh, men, uh, white husbands and fathers have been uh, uh, feminized. And if not that, at least uh, they've been cut down to the fact that they're ashamed of their masculinity. So in a lot of ways, they've, you know, they've been uh, ostracized to the side. They don't have an opinion. They can't speak. So when you do that, uh, the great irony, the great irony is that a lot of feminists are now are pushing a gap back against the, the transgender cult because now uh, women uh, in sports and bathrooms and locker rooms are getting, obviously, they're, 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 they're getting threatened and opportunities are getting taken away from them. And the feminists are coming out, and you've seen that. I think you've, you know, we, you've, we've been in spaces together and seen that. And they're now pushing back. But the great irony is that feminism had a large hand in um, making men impotent and ashamed of their masculinity. So now, when we need men to stand up, there are none. This is why there's a mom's for liberty. There's not a dad's for liberty. Now, men are stepping up. We are seeing that more. But in my experience, in these school board meetings and parent groups, it's like 85, 90% moms, not fathers and husbands. And so uh, the ethnic communities largely have held on to that as you know more than, I would say, uh, your typical Caucasian uh, community. And so that's one of the reasons why, uh, because the masculine, the masculine uh, figure is still very well respected in a lot of those ethnic communities. I think the second reason why is because most immigrants, when they come here, they come here with so little that they respect the country, they love the country, and they don't let their children make excuses because they've left really very, very uh, difficult uh, cultures and countries, and they haven't let their children forgot about that. So I think when the child comes home and talk about nonsense like, I didn't get a good grade because the teacher must be racist, I know in the Chinese community, we pretty much knocked that off really quick. Uh, and so we focus on all the things that you can do to better your life or your grade or your project or whatever it is that the child's working on. We don't let our children make the excuses simply because our family comes from uh, very harsh, oftentimes socialist or communist countries. And so it's almost um, in a way, in a lack of a better term, we don't have time for that nonsense <laughs> and we don't let our children <laughs> uh indulge in that nonsense where I think um, when you're born in this country, it's almost like life is too easy. Um, 
and we let our children invent problems instead of having them feel grateful that they're born in luxury. Yeah, absolutely. I think there is a lot to it. What you just said resonates for me. There's, um, there's always challenge in life and we've managed through evolution and technology and culture over time to eradicate many of the challenges that our ancestors faced. And so what do we do with that energy that wants to tackle a challenge when the stakes are high enough, you will do the thing that ultimately keeps you safe and successful. Like an example that I gave earlier today when I recorded an episode with, um, Oh, I heard that you're on on that podcast. That's fantastic. I was on the genius of Thomas Sowell. Um, the I day you and him. I are recording this, uh, I spoke with Alan Woolen from that podcast, although I'm sure they're yeah, really Yeah, I can't wait to hear that. Good. I love Thomas. He's fantastic. His books are amazing. So that, I'm that's a great- I'm actually not nearly as familiar with Thomas Sowell as I wish I was. <laughs> no, I, but, yeah, um, no, I can't wait to hear you. I'm sure you did great on it, but yeah, no, congratulations Alan on that. Alan Woolen great. is a great guy and I use yeah. this analogy in that conversation. So here's an example. When you get behind the wheel of the car, you know that you- could that the stakes for one wrong move are high you're behind this huge chunk of steel and if you let your awareness slip for a couple of seconds it you could find yourself in a life or death situation and so when you're behind the wheel of the car you follow the rules of the road and you buckle your seatbelt and it doesn't matter how badly anyone else drives you are still going to pay attention and you're still going to drive safely And if someone cuts you off obnoxiously or, you know, jumps in front of you without their turn signal, Mm -hmm. you know, you can swear and pound on the wheel as much as you want, but you're still going to slow down or you're still going to move out of the way because Mm -hmm. you're the one responsible for keeping yourself safe, regardless of what other people are doing. So when we're behind the wheel, we all have an internal locus of control. And if we don't, we pay the price for that because the consequences are steep. So I think that's a good analogy because whenever the stakes are high enough in a situation, ultimately we will act according to our highest wisdom and take care of ourselves and keep ourselves out of trouble. Um, But I think we are in so many situations, the stakes aren't high enough or the consequences aren't real or immediate enough. And so we get away with, like you're saying, all this nonsense and we mess around partly because we do live in so much security, but it makes sense what you're saying, you know? And I think it's ironic that so many of the people who are behind this DEI, SEL, CRT, all this stuff, they really like to think of themselves as being champions on the sides of immigrants and people of different ethnic backgrounds. But I wonder how much exposure they've actually had to other cultures and to <laughs> <Almost> like <none. laughs> how people think when they when they have come to this country yeah when they when they or their parents or their grandparents yeah. worked really hard to come to this country as a refuge from a place where there was much greater hardship because it makes sense that if you know what it's like to have to build from nothing then the stakes are real and you're just going to Teach your kids, again, that internal locus of control. Take responsibility for what you can control. I don't care if your teacher's racist or not. Get that A, kid, because yeah. <laughs> don't yeah. you know what I had to do to get to here? To get here, right. Exactly right. I love but, that. You know, the ki- I mean, it's it's the white kids that are most concerned with whether their teacher is racist. 
rest. Right. The rest of the kids, like, hey, we're just happy not to have a gun stuck to our head. Like our grandpa, you know, my, my, my great grandfather, he ran from communism and, you know, they dragged him out of his bakery. He owned two small bakeries and they beat him, you know, because the, because Mao's government told him that the rich were evil. Same thing. And it wasn't the, it wasn't the army that, it wasn't the military that beat him. It was college kids. They're that version of Antifa, that version of BLM, that version of the LGBT mafia. It was the same thing. It's just that in China, uh, they couldn't divide people by uh, race because it was a monolith, obviously. Um, uh, so they divide people by class. So same thing, identities, intersectionality, same same model. And I, I love your example about the car. It's a, you, you, it's a lot more graceful of an example that I usually give. <laughs> well, they get at slightly different things. Right? Another example is like, imagine you need to have some urgent life-saving surgery. Do you want do you want the best surgeon or do you want the surgeon who voted for the same people you voted for in the last election? <laughs> it's like, funny. I you and I have the same I have the example of the uh, anesthesiologist. Mm. I I give the same thing. I would say like imagine if you're going to surgery and you're about to, you know, open heart surgery and you got this purple hair androgynous person walk up to you and, and that this person that supposed to be a, you don't know whether by guy or girl goes, hi, I'm your anesthesiologist. Oh, I know who you are. You're all about equity. You push for, you're about social justice. Well, thanks to you, not only did I get into medical school, which I shouldn't have, but you lowered the standards, but I graduated even though I was a terrible student because I identify as a blah, blah pronoun. But anyway, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to give you your gas now. At that oh, moment, geez. at that moment, equity is not your friend because a little too much and a little mm -hmm. too little. Mm -hmm. So I always like to, I, when people have opinions, everybody can have opinions, but I always like to challenge a person's opinion down to something that will affect their life. The problem with when these young people look up to celebrities and things, when celebrities make these political statements, none of them ever have to suffer the consequence of their decisions and their votes. It doesn't matter who's president. They're so wealthy that they can shield themselves from any, they don't care that eggs cost $9, right? This doesn't matter to them. So when I was in California, uh, before I moved to Indiana, one of the fights I took on was the sanctuary city. And so every opponent that came at me, I always ask them this one thing. Do you believe in a sanctuary state? They go, yes. Do you believe in a sanctuary city? They go, yes. Do you believe in sanctuary county? They go, yes. I said, then, okay. I'm going to create a database where all illegal aliens that come into California uh, can look up addresses where they can go walk in and your address will be one of them. And every day you come home, you might have five illegal aliens. You might have two, you might have 10. You don't know. It'll just be a revolving door like what you want our borders to be. And they flipped out. They're like, that's ridiculous. I'm like, wait a minute. How could that be ridiculous? You said you wanted a state, you wanted a city, you want a county. So the next logical conclusion is a sanctuary home. And then they would have all these excuses. I can't do that. I don't have enough room. I don't have enough this. All of a sudden, resources become important to them. But when you try to make that argument on a state level or on a city level, they're because they've been brainwashed in schools, there's that cognitive dissonance. They believe that this, there's money everywhere and that rich people should just be able to support all these people. And so anytime someone has an opinion, I always try to bring it down to a level where they have to say that's ridiculous. Because you have to take it to its logical conclusion. So if you believe in equity, you believe in lowering uh, entries, 
which is what Harvard got in trouble for because they were trying to uh, uh, change the the, uh, the uh, registration or who can qualify to go into Harvard because so many Asians were in Harvard. They were discriminating against Asians and trying to get more uh, Black and Hispanic students into Harvard. And so if you believe in that, then I take it to it's all the way to the point where you're the one going to have open heart surgery. And you get this androgynous trans identifying as a furry, identifying as a dog person that got into medical school and graduated because of your advocacy. And they're about to give you, do you want that person or do you want that Asian or Indian person that, that got 4.0 throughout medical, medical school? All right. I'm going to change the subject. <laughs> Um, you with courage is a habit have been exploring and exposing what's going on with the American School Counselor Association. I want to pick topic. your brain about that. <laughs> Tell us about the American School Counselor Association and why you're going after them. Largely, ninety nine percent of parents still believe that school counselors in K through twelve are your guidance counselors that we all grew up knowing. Uh, maybe they help you with your academics, college prep courses. If you do have an issue, they're there. You can talk to them and they'll bring your parents in, kind of help monitor your situation. Maybe you went through some tough things in the family, what you're going through. But that's no longer the case. Around 2014, the American School Counselor Association uh, really started shifting into the uh, very, very heavy ideological activist role. For those that don't know, the American School Counselor Association, which I will call ASCA uh, from this point forward, it's American School Counselor Association, have, uh, they have uh, chapters in all 50 states. And your school counselors in K-12 through take their training mission objectives from ASCA. So they largely control the attitudes and the missions of school counselors in K-12 through in all 50 states. We found out uh, a little while ago how radical they are. They are big pushers of critical race theory, uh, huge, huge purveyors of gender ideology. The thing that's rough about school counselors and, and by extension, social workers, because a lot of K through 12 are now hiring outside social workers, which have even less uh, boundaries than school counselors, is that they unfortunately have access to children who honestly need help. And instead of solving their individual issues, be it bulimia or anxiety or OCD or a host of other issues that some kids may have, they move them towards a transgender cult, making them you know, feel like that maybe their problem is that they just identify with the wrong sex or the wrong gender. And like we talked about earlier, Stephanie, that, that immediate love bombing and immediate dopamine hit is certainly a lot more attractive than trying to deal with your actual underlying issue. I mean, as adults, it's a lot more fun to watch Netflix than to do our whatever it is that we're supposed to do at, at the end of the long day. So the children that have very little impulse control, um, and most children um, don't have any delayed gratification uh, abilities yet, obviously getting love bombed and accepted is a lot easier than dealing with whatever your underlying issue is. And so that's what the counselors do now for children in K-12 through or do to them. So 
when we try to expose this, of course, uh, ASCA came out and simply said, oh, that's not true. We're not doing any of it. We just support all students. We're not ideological. So what my team and I did was we attended uh, their conference in, in July in Austin. It was their big annual conference. So all the school counselors from all over the country flew down for this. As an aside, the name of their conference was called No Limits. I thought that was actually quite obtuse. If you're around children all day, calling your conference No Limits, it's kind of on the nose. <laughs> we believe that next year it might be No Boundaries, followed by Don't Tell Your Parents. So <laughs> anyway, we went to their conference. Uh, we grabbed their videos, uh, PowerPoints, handouts, training materials. And we created a campaign that's still ongoing called Behind Closed Doors. And you can find that on our website at courageisahabit.org. Uh, and we have four entries and we'll have much more. And uh, we basically just featured their own words, their own agendas, their own PowerPoints, their own trainings. So of course, our opponents still consider it misinformation or lies which is actually kind of funny because all we're doing is exposing something that parents would otherwise never see. Since then, we've also uh, attended a lot of their trainings. Uh, we also were able to get into their uh, certification programs. So we've downloaded their questions and there's 0% uh, chance that anybody can look at this and not see that they're very, uh, they're activists. It's very obvious they want to keep things from parents and it's very obvious they're all about critical race theory and about pushing gender ideology. And so that's what we've been doing. Um, and since then, I'm happy to say that uh, in other publications and other parent groups and just around the country, we're now seeing people uh, talk about school counselors as much as they're talking about teachers or school board members, which is, as you know, up until very recently, we only talk about teachers and school board members, maybe some superintendents, but very rarely do we talk about school counselors. Uh, and now people are talking about it, um, I think largely because of some of the things that we've exposed. And also the, uh, we, there's a really great article that recently talked about them as well. It's also, we also linked it into our link tree on our Twitter and Instagram. Um, and they did a good job on the article as well, talking about the American School Counselor Association. As a therapist, I've gotten an up-close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out, it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being, like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar, and it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. 
Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving your cells the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. What are some of the most shocking things that your team discovered were being said behind closed doors at ASCA? So there is a woman named Caroline Stone with a C, Caroline Stone. And she, and I'm going to say this slowly because people are going to think I'm, I'm joking. She is the head of the ethics committee for the American School Counselor Association. And she's been that for nearly 20 years. In fact, this is her last year. She's going to retire. Okay. She's the head of the ethics committee. And in the opening uh, speech to kick off the conference, Caroline Stone told of a story and encouraged school counselors uh, to, she told of a story of a school counselor that took a young girl to get birth control against her mother's wishes. And she joked that there are three things I could have told this counselor when she told me about this. Number one, uh, do we convince the girl to go get her mother's permission? Two, does this counselor call the mother and own up to the fact that I took your daughter to get contraceptives without, you know, against your wishes? Or number three, hold your breath and pray, meaning let's, let's hope the mother doesn't find out. And everybody in the audience said number three. And she says, yes, now you are all ready to be on the ethics committee. This is not an edited video. You can, you can find it in our YouTube. If you go to right now, if you go to youtube.com slash courage habit, or you can download behind closed doors one. That's literally. I, as the look, if you're the look on your face right now, it's exactly the look we had when we saw we're like. <laughs> This can't, can't be. There's no way. <laughs> yeah, for, for those who are just listening and not watching this on YouTube, like my face is, my face looks like my brain hurts because yeah, it does. It does. Like it's, I mean, these stories are just unbelievable until you see them. But, you know, for those who are new to this, I appreciate your patience getting this far in the conversation. This is why people like Alvin and I have conversations like this because Things like this are happening. We can. I'll give you a link I, so you can link it way, on your on your I'm descriptions. Gonna have, I'm, I'm just going to go on a little rant about birth control for a second here because there is a pipeline that somebody needs to investigate if this has not been done already. That is, it starts with a girl, 13, 14, 15, not sexually active. She either has painful periods or heaven forbid she has acne. Mm, and right. a doctor recommends as the first line of treatment that she go on hormonal prescription birth control. Like, oh, well, we can make those periods less painful or we can make your skin clearer. All we have to do is mess with your endocrine system like it ain't no thing, right? And then what happens next is 
within a couple years, she's on antidepressants. And then she's on antidepressants until her 20s. And then at some point, she goes to a therapist and does not know herself as an adult woman that is not on birth control and antidepressants, does not know her own wow. mind, does not know her own emotions. And if if you're hearing yourself in this and you happen to have ever been a client of mine, no, I'm not talking about your story because I have seen it a hundred times. Okay. This is so common. Wow. Birth control is a hormonal intervention on the endocrine system. The endocrine system and your hormones affect a lot. Mood, concentration, sexuality. And for many women, hormonal birth control is very emotionally destabilizing. I say mm. this because I'm one of those women. Now, I know there are women who respond differently, but I am not the sort of person who can take any artificial hormones, put them in my body, and be the least bit okay. Mm. I will be a hot freaking mess if I mess with my endocrine system. That's part of why I'm so passionate about this issue because I know from personal experience how much uh, hormones affect our mood. Okay. But there are girls got it. who are not warned about this at all. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, you know, and maybe they have some normal teenage issues too, psychologically, when they go on the when you birth control. They probably have body image issues, by the way. Not, not that we should body shame girls, but uh, messing with a girl's endocrine disruption can also affect her weight. So that's fun, right? Because then what happens if she gains 20 pounds because of the drugs that you put her on that she didn't need and now she's bulimic mm. because she doesn't like being overweight, okay? Mm. So there are so many and and you know, reach out if you're one of these women, <laughs> like leave a comment on the YouTube video, okay? Because when I talk about this, this on Twitter, all these women are like, "I'll volunteer myself as a case study," right? <laughs> it is so normal for doctors to medicate away normal teenage experiences and before the trans issue came up girls going on birth control not mm. because they're sexually active or sometimes because they are and maybe that's a problem maybe they shouldn't be a sexually active or you know but right. but going on birth control because of their painful periods or their acne and look i understand i have my women's issues too but if you have painful periods you sure as heck better start with lifestyle, okay? Mm. Because your nutrient intake, the quality of your sleep, your exercise, those things will affect a lot about a girl's cycle, especially in the first few years when her hormones mm. are still stabilizing. She's actually actively going through puberty. You know, you don't want to assume that she has some crippling condition that can only ever be solved through birth control. Like, you know, or get her to an acupuncturist, a Chinese medicine practitioner. They'll look at what's going on in the whole system and, you know, balance out your energy. So my point is <laughs> that there are all these girls who are being put on birth control to solve a normal problem and it affects their psychology. It affects their emotions, their weight, their self-esteem their emotional lability, lability, you know, how labile they are, how volatile they are, right? It'll affect their anxiety. Mm. And they never know that it's the hormones because they were never allowed to naturally go through the process of puberty and adjust to, you know, what their natural hormones make them feel emotionally. Mm. Then they're growing up with this image of themselves as being someone who's depressed and anxious and needs antidepressants. Then they're on antidepressants. Okay. And they emerge into adulthood this way. So 
I, I, I had to drive this home because it's on my mind because it bothers me because I want someone to investigate it because I've seen it as a therapist. So many women in my huh. office made it to their 20s without ever getting to know their own brains and bodies without all these chemicals in them. And so for a counselor at a school who's not a doctor and certainly not an endocrinologist to take pride in going behind a girl's parents' backs yeah. to put her on these powerful mind-altering substances is just it's offensive it is i've never heard anybody talk about birth control that way and that domino effect mm. that it can have yeah it's a big issue and look there are yeah. women out there who are going to be like i love birth control it's great for me it helped me with my problems and my periods are less painful and i have no mood swings and like good good for you i'm not talking to yeah. you i'm talking right. about all the women who don't have that same response and there are many women Especially who so don't young. have that same Getting response. them on there so young is what's the... Yeah. And that's the problem with the, the puberty blockers. When you give them to them at 9, 10, it just, it destroys them. Did you, did you see my, uh, did you see my joke about the boycott, boycotting uh, State Farm that actually kind of like went around a little bit, but I thought it was going to no. be a joke? No. So I, I, I wanted to sometimes encourage the habit. We try to, we test things out right? Whether it be me or whoever runs our Twitter, we, um, sometimes I'll have an idea. If I have an idea, instead of putting the team on to do the research and to each of these tools that we do, it takes tons of time to do one of them. I'll sometimes put out a thread to see if it makes sense. Uh, if, if our opponents get really mad about it, then that gives me a good idea that it's probably something we should make it a little bit bigger, you know? <laughs> so I like to just see how it does. If they don't get mad about it, I'm like, uh, it wasn't a very well thought out thing, you know, but anyway, so I'd like to try to, we try to give parents different angles to get them out of the emotions, the blackmail of, if you don't do this, the children are going to kill themselves. So one of the thoughts I had was, uh, insurance, any parent who insures their teenage child knows of the high premium insurance companies put on children. Why? Because young drivers are not safe drivers. There was a study that the UK did that 85% of injuries or accidents that end in fatal injuries came for drivers between 15 and 20, which makes sense. We all know this, right? You don't have to be in uh, car insurance to know children. Like uh, all of us at one point, we feel invincible. We get distracted. We have our dumb friends in the car, yada, yada, right? So every parent knows that until your child becomes 25, you pay a very high premium because insurance companies know that most accidents happen for drivers under 25. Girls mature a little bit earlier, boys maybe a little later, but they do have to draw a line somewhere and say they're 25, right? That's when a human being fairly matures, which is what we talked about in the very beginning of this episode about identity and not foreclosing that too early. So when I went to State Farm, I just picked State Farm. There was no real reason. I was shocked that they had a whole page about the transgender cult, encouraging children, transgender, you know, gender-affirming care, which you and I both know what that means, supporting places like Gleason, which pushes hormone, you know, the puberty blockers, cross-sex hormone surgeries, that type of thing. So I put a Twitter, I put a thread out that says, hey, parents, if you have State Farm, they support they don't believe that a child is a safe enough driver under 25, but at 15, they can make a lifelong decision about their bodies. 
If you have State Farm, you should call them and have them drop that premium because you can't have it both ways. You either believe they're mature enough to be a safe driver at 15 and that they're mature enough to make that decision about mutilating their own bodies. If you don't believe that they're a safe enough driver until 25, then you can't possibly make the argument. And I, you know, hashtag boycott State Farm. And wouldn't you believe it? A lot of people said, I just call State Farm and dropped them. I just call State Farm and changed it. I just call State Farm and asked them and they wouldn't do it. I was like, oh my God. I couldn't believe it. And, but my point was these organizations that put so much money, they, they take your money as a consumer, okay? As a, you know, you have a 17-year-old driver, 18-year-old driver on your insurance. They jack up the premium, take that money and give it to a place like Gleason so that Gleason can go brainwash the younger sibling. Why would you do that? Because these companies don't believe it. If they truly believed it, they would drop all their premiums. Because if you believe you're you're mature enough to make a lifelong decision about mutilating your body, you can be a safe enough driver. And so I think those are the things that parents have to get over that emotional blackmail. When someone looks at them and go, you're transphobic, you want to kill kids. Instead of leaning into that and believing that's what they're saying, they're only saying that to silence you. Because nowhere in the history of parenting do we ever, ever use suicide as a marker. My 13-year-old wants to run away with 30-year-old. If I don't let her, she's going to kill herself. My 15-year-old wants to get a tattoo. If I don't sign off on it, he's going to kill himself. Not only is that dangerous, not only is it not true, number one, but we're teaching a whole generation of children, out transgender or not, that if you want something and an adult says no, all you got to say is, I want to kill myself. Think about the precedence that's going to set. And the amount of suicides that you're, you're quite literally teaching because we would never do that with anything ever. We don't do it in any history of parenting. We don't use, they might kill themselves as a reason to allow them to harm themselves. That's why you have parents and uncles and aunts and a loving family or a church or a synagogue or a mosque, your community to guide you because children obviously don't have any life experience. This is why we don't let them sign contracts. This is why a 16-year-old cannot sign a contract, a bank loan, can't buy a house, can't do a credit card. This is why when a child commits a crime, after a certain age, we don't hold that crime against them, depending on the crime. Juvenile records. Why? Because in every permutation of society, from driving a car to committing a crime to getting a tattoo to a million other things, we look at age and they're under a certain age. We say that didn't count. They can't do that because they were not mature enough. But all those things like a tattoo or, I don't know, signing a contract or driving a car, unless you get really hurt, all those things actually have no long-term health destruction. If you sign a contract bad, you can file for bankruptcy. If you get a tattoo, oh, well, it's not going to kill you. You can get it covered up or whatever. But the one thing that we cannot change is mutilating our breasts and our sexual organs. And that's what we're encouraging these children to do all in the name of diversity or they're going to kill themselves. So that's why we try to encourage parents to look beyond that because nothing in our life operates like this. All right. I want to do a little practice with you. Okay. Um, 
So I, I'm curious what you would say in various situations that parents are faced with or parents that, or maybe that parents have these situations playing out in their mind, but they don't, they haven't put themselves in the line of fire yet. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, so here in Oregon, we're under state mandate that menstrual products be in all bathrooms at all schools. So we have menstrual products in the boys' elementary school bathrooms. All right. So imagine you're a parent. Yeah. And your third grader, your third grade son mm -hmm. is seeing tampons and pads in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. You want to say something to someone, but you're afraid, right? Let's, let's talk about what you could be afraid of. There could be, what, do you have a problem with being inclusive? Mm -hmm. So who do you talk to and how do you overcome that fear? Or, or how, you know, if someone does say that to you, what do you say in response? Or what do you tell yourself to talk yourself through it? <clears throat> the reason why you have ridiculousness like tampons in a boy's bathroom is because the parent before you allowed boys to go into the girl's bathroom. They made them believe that that's all they wanted and that was it. But obviously we know that this is just a beginning. <clears throat> so what I would tell that parent is if you let this go now, they will escalate to something else that you can't stop. So you have to make a big deal out of these things that doesn't seem like a big deal and you have to keep at them because if you don't it'll be your daughter's locker room next showering next to your daughter it will be a man who identifies as a girl sleeping in your daughter's quarters during camp which some camps are already doing that so you have to draw the line somewhere because if you wait until it's a line that you absolutely don't agree with, it'll be too late. All right. So now you've said that to this parent. Mm -hmm. All right. And this parent has gone and talked to their school. Who, who do you recommend they talk to at school? The principal or? or it'll be the principal. Person? Okay. It'll so be the, the parent goes and talks to the school principal. Mm -hmm. Principal says. Go pound ten. Principal says. You have a problem with being inclusive of our transgender community. Mm -hmm. So what do you say to that? There's no such thing as a transgender child. Show me the study where children are born into the wrong bodies and it's been proven. I'll ask them, how long have you been in principle? They'll say, most of the time, 10 years, 15 years. Did you know any transgender kids then? Why the last couple of years? And then I would ask them, why does 78% of the transgender child identified as white students? Do you know an Indian transgender child? Do you know a Chinese transgender child? They'll say no. There's no such thing as a transgender child. As a principal, you either are too weak to stand up to it or you actually believe in it in either way. You must expose this principle. And that's why flipping the school board is important, right? Or whatnot, but you have to be able to get him to defend his 
stance. You as a parent don't have to defend your stance. So when they say, you're a transphobe, what's the matter? Don't you want to be inclusive? The biggest mistake parents make is they, they start defending. No, I want all kids to feel welcome. No, my nephew's gay. No, I don't want kids to be hurt, but I don't think. Anything after you say, anything after the word, but it doesn't matter. So anytime someone calls you a transphobe or you want to kill kids or you don't want to be inclusive, pretend that person didn't say that and you start with your questioning and make them own to it. Mm. So you're saying don't go on the defense, remain on the offense. Always on offense. Okay. Ask them how long you've been a principal. How many transgender kids did you know before 2018? Did you put tampons in a boy's bathroom five years ago? Why not? And he'll say no. Did transgender kids all of a sudden become this and that? Well, now they feel more accepted. Well, wait a minute. Were you not accepted then? Who told you to be accepted now and not then? Right? If the principal goes, I've been a principal for 20 years, 15 years. All right. Once you put tampons in a boy's bathroom two years ago, what happened in the last 18 years in the schools that you've been to? How come you didn't put tampons in? Weren't you inclusive of students then? Or did you not know any transgender kids then? And if not, why? Did this just come up today? Did this come up last couple of years? Because all of a sudden this is vogue? Ask him. Ask her. Why didn't you put tampons in children's bathroom the last 18 years of a principal? Weren't you inclusive then? Why does the transgender com- why does the, the, the transgender ideology affect 78% of white students? Well, wait, not I just got to correct that. Not 78% of white students. But or so, excuse me. Why does yeah. the, why does 78% of right. children who ident- who does who does the uh, transgender surgery 70%? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So so let's say that the principal kind of deftly sidesteps your questions. Yeah, they and- do that. And and says instead, look, I'm not a statistician. Yeah. I don't know the numbers. I'm not a doctor. Okay. But I'm offended by what you're saying, Alvin, Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, we know that social transition makes these kids happy. They just want to be accepted for who they are. You know, you and I can't possibly know what it's like to live with gender dysphoria and we're just doing the inclusive thing that mm-hmm. we now understand is the best practice because we've been learning more about mm-hmm. how to treat these trans kids. We can't mm-hmm. know what it's like to be in their shoes. The best we can do is just try to understand and respect their lived experience. And if using the bathroom that is congruent with their gender identity helps them feel less suicidal, then it's the least we can do. It doesn't hurt anybody. It's no sweat off your back, you bigot. Mm-hmm. So I say, show me the studies that they'll kill themselves. Show me the studies. And then, I, of course, I would bring the study that we can, you can grab from couragesahabit.org uh, under other resources or under tools. Uh, there's a great study done by Heritage that destroys the, the suicide myth. So you want to bring some of that. But I'll say, show me the studies. What study did you... Show me the study that you based this decision on. When you put tampons in a boy's bathroom, you're, you are putting that social contagion on them. Show me that study. He won't be able to. So then I'll say, you made this very important decision based on no studies. Show me the study that you made that. Why as a principal would you change the culture of a school without a study, without any facts? That's what I would say. And then I would 
that if that's something important, I would lead a bunch of parents to petition, to go to to go to school boards, to go to 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 to, to go meet him, uh, meeting after meeting after meeting, emails after emails, phone calls after phone calls, until we get that tam- the, the tampons out of the boys' bathroom. Because what they're doing is that they're continuing to uh, further that social contagion. So you hold him to the fact that there is no studies. He doesn't have a study that he literally made that decision based on politics. That's one thing I would do. The second thing I would do is um, I would ask him, what line are you, are you, would you draw? Based on what you said, we, don't, we can't understand the live experiences. You're a bigot. Uh, they're going to kill themselves. We just want to make them feel better. I go, so what line are you prepared to draw? Should we have, should we have a little, should, should we have grown men in girls' bathrooms? What about locker rooms? Sports? What about sleepovers? What line are you prepared to draw as a principal? Make him say it. If he can't say it, then I would expose him as someone who cannot draw lines. He has to be able to say, if it comes to locker rooms, I draw the line. I, I will lose my job over locker rooms. But tampons, I'm willing to do that. I don't think that, I think that's a small enough thing. But in my experience, 99% of these principal, these spineless principals and school board members, they don't have a line. So the point of it is, is not even necessarily to get the tampons out of the bathroom, which is of course the point is to expose that they are not fit for leadership because they have to be able to say, this is a line I won't be able to draw. I'm not going to, this is the line I will not. At what point do you expose girls to this, this insanity? So I'll ask, make them ask, I'll ask them, what line are you willing to draw? Locker rooms, showers, sports, sleepovers, what, what age? What if a, what if a grown man wants to use the girl's bathroom? One of your custodians, one of your teachers, according to you, just making them feel safe should be paramount. So what line are you willing to draw? So that's why I'm saying that for parents, you have to find your offense. You can't let these kind of meaningless, you're a homophobe, transphobe kind of throw you off. And largely that's what courage is a habit does when we go into different states when we work with different parents, it's not so much that we teach them break down like what social emotional learning is, what restorative justice is, what ask us doing. Of course we do that, but mostly it's in the mind of a parent because if we don't teach them how to look for gaslighting, if we don't teach them how to work around these empty slogans and these labeling, then it really doesn't matter what we expose because parents will largely be too afraid to stand up, which is the whole point, which is why they do it so much. The reason why these people do it so much is because it works. And so my job, our job at Courage is Habit is to try to reverse some of that brainwashing. I often, when I stand up to speak to parents, one of my opening lines is, you're all here because you think that your children are being brainwashed. You're being brainwashed first. It's not your children that are being brainwashed. It's you that are being brainwashed. Because if you weren't, you wouldn't be here tonight and you would know how to stand up for your child. They brainwash you first. Explain that more. What are the the parents who are already concerned enough to be talking to you? What are they brainwashed into? Exactly what you said. Believing that they're a transphobe, believing that 
if they're not kind, the children are going to kill themselves. Believing that real history isn't taught. Believing that they're racist or a bigot to say that uh, this country is not oppressive or racist. They're brainwashed into believing all the things you said from the very beginning of this episode, that I'm going to be ostracized if I speak up. I'm afraid. Believing that their own doubts are sinful or radical. Mm-hmm. Or standing like, up for their kids somehow makes them bigot. Like somehow, they've lost, yeah. they've already lost so much ground. Like I'm not hearing it so much that anyone's brainwashed if they're talking to people like you and me and listening yeah. to podcasts like this, trying to get right. answers. But right. but I think I hear you pointing out that they've lost so much ground already yeah. if they're feeling that afraid or yeah. that much self-doubt about something as reasonable as standing on the ground that you're standing on. When parents come to our events, they're largely looking for a magic bullet. And there doesn't exist. They're looking for a magic way that I can give them some tools, some magic video, some PDF, some aha moment where they can stand up for their child, but not put themselves on the line. If we're mm-hmm. going to talk about the elephant in the room, that's really what it is. When parents uh, you know, listen to our podcast or your podcast, or they come to one of my events, or they download a tool, they're looking for that magic bullet. What can I say or do that will protect my child, but not put myself on the line? What study, what statistic, what? And it doesn't exist. Because the opponents, the people who are pushing this on children, the groomers, the child, the child mutilation advocates, the transgender activists, they will have a gaslight for every fact because they don't have to be right. They just need you to be silent. So if you as a parent are not willing to take the arrows for your child, then it doesn't matter how many podcasts you listen to or how many white papers you read or how many statistics or facts that you get because every time you speak up, they're simply going to tell you you're a bigot and a racist and want to kill kids. And if you can't handle that, then it won't matter what you say because they don't address your fact. For example, why does 78% of children that get mutilation surgery white? They can't answer that. They'll just call you a bigot and a transphobe and you want to kill kids. But if you ignore that and you go, no, answer the question. Why is that? They won't be able to answer to you. One person try to say is because of social economic level. White people have more money so they can get the surgeries. How funny is that? But what's funny is that Indian and Asians make more money on average as a household income than whites. So it's in economics. So those are the things we try to give parents to be able to fight back on it. Things like you don't give them a Tylenol without asking a parent. You don't let them give the, uh, you can't get, you can't go get, you can't take them go get tattoo, but you can give them chest binders. You can recommend puberty blockers. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com slash shop, where you will find goods and services I have personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. I think part of the problem is that, you know, 
of course it becomes front and center in a family's life when it's their kid is now declaring that some non-binary identity and asking for a binder and things like that. But long before it ever gets to that point, um, and for many families that never gets to that point, it's just the exposure to the ideas in the school, Right. right? right? And so if you know your kid is being taught certain things about race, for example, or you know that your kid has tampons in the boys' room, but it's not specifically about your kid. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of parents don't, they just don't want to make a fuss. They're like, yeah. they're like, my kid seems to be doing well in school. Um, their teacher seems to like them. I don't want their teacher to like them any less. I don't yeah. want to stick out like a sore thumb. This doesn't really affect us. Yeah. Like, what? how does a parent like that decide that it's worth it to feel like they're sticking out like a sore thumb and taking these risks and talking to people and what is the first step when a parent's child isn't particularly implicated? When it's just more concerned about the overall environment at school? My family and I, we had moved from a kind of a low income area because my, you know, obviously my parents were very poor, you know, being immigrants in this country. And we, you know, moved a couple of times until my parents started doing well. We moved into this really nice, pretty decent neighborhood. And I remember, um, about a year or so in, there was a string of robberies. Like they were really brazen. They would break in during the day. People were home. And I remember uh, even as a child, you know, us, my my dad uh, meeting with a bunch of other uh, neighbors and they kind of formed like a neighborhood watch and that type of thing. And everybody was on really high alert uh, until eventually a couple months later, they caught the couple guys that were doing it, you know. They were breaking in because there were new houses and people were moving and there was some vulnerabilities there. People sell their stuff out, things like that, right? Didn't have a chance to get alarms yet, that kind of thing. In every permutation of life, if there is something that could potentially affect your child, you get involved before it does. My dad didn't say, well, a couple of houses down door got robbed and the guy next door got robbed and they're not robbing us, so what do we care? When it comes to, well like a disease. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> that could affect other people. You know, maybe we started talking about, oh, we should prevent it. We should wear masks and stuff, even though we know that really largely didn't do anything. But the point of it is, is that every time there's something that's going around, every parent takes the time to try to protect their children before it hits them. Never do we ever take the attitude of, well, it doesn't affect us, even though it's literally affecting the very thing that our children spend seven hours a day in. If, you're, if you took a child to your gymnastics class and you found out that there was a big flu going around gymnastics, you would probably keep your child at gymnastics class for a little while until that was out, right? So when your child spends seven hours a day for 12 years on something and you see that this is happening in your schools and in your district and your county and in all across the country, you take that precaution now before it affects your child. And on that note, I would say that we talked a lot about how this is happening in school and how difficult it is and all those things. I didn't want to, I didn't want to say that, you know, as we're coming to a close here, I didn't want to say that the greatest thing a parent can do is to be their child's first voice. Largely, what I found that a children that gets captured in this 
is because they've come from a place where the ch- the parent have largely kind of abandoned their responsibility as parents. The kids who are wrapped up in, tra- and then you've interviewed a couple, uh, they largely have a lot of time on their hands and not only in school, but they're also radicalized through TikTok and YouTube and social media, right? So they get it from school and they get reinforced at, at home because they have all this time on their hands. So as sad as it is, because we don't want to talk to our kids about these things, parents today, because we are parents today, we do have to introduce these concepts to children earlier than we would like to. And trust me, I have a hard time with that too. I do. Um, It's easier said than done. But if we don't get these verbiage like diversity and inclusion and equity and gender affirming care and gender and pronouns, if we don't talk to our child about this first, someone else will. And they will do it in a way that radicalizes your child. So I would say for parents, if you if you have young children, you make sure you be the voice first. You tell them that these things like pronouns and all these words might sound good, but it's no different than we tell a child, hey, if a, if a man comes up to you or a woman comes up to you and say, I have a puppy or I have candy in here in this car, come with me, I'll show you my puppy. What do we tell them? Don't do that. If a stranger talks to you and your mom and dad's not around, you go run and you go get your mom and dad or you go get an adult that you trust. It's the same thing. We have to tell them, hey, people live their lives how they live their lives. But when you hear these words, these are not good words. And we want you to ignore it. What they're telling you is not true. No different than if a guy with a puppy in a van, you know, say, hey, you going to pet my puppy? So that's one thing um, I would say that as parents, you have to get that uh, be your your child's first voice, um, and then try to limit their social media because the idle hands is the devil's workshop. And children who have a lot of time on their hands to spend a lot of time on social media have a much higher chance of being radicalized because it's dripped all over social media. And last but not least, I find that parents who raise their kids with and I, the key word is earned. Okay, keyword is earned, earned self esteem and self, uh, self-confidence and self-esteem, self-worth, self-worth inoculates against this stuff a lot. Because largely this transgender cult preys upon uh, children who have very low self-worth and self-esteem, very low social value. Um, obviously, we don't want to praise our children, uh, you know, to, to tell them, you know, the whole trophy, genera- the, the trophy generation uh, that you give them, you tell them they're great when they're not great at anything. That doesn't help. But try to put your children into situations where they have earned self-respect, self-esteem, and self, uh, self-confidence. Uh, you know, uh, sports or something that they have to earn their way. Maybe they're not great at playing something, and then they practice and practice and practice, and then they turn in a great recital. Uh, give them chores. We don't give chores, kill children chores enough. Uh, if you have a family business, make them work into it. If you don't have a family business, make them help around the house, not for money, but because that's their responsibility. And then praise them when they do a good job, but criticize them when they don't. Because if you don't give them something to work towards to build true self-worth, then they're largely going to be looking for that. And, and unfortunately, these school counselors and these, um, you know, these really heavy ideological uh, components in school will give them a place to feel good, but it's, you know, it's going to lead them down a really horrible path. Okay, thank you for your wisdom, Alvin. So let's go over all the things that Courage is a Habit does. You have 
your Twitter account at Courage Habit. You have your website, courageisahabit.org. You have Courage as a Habit podcast. Um, and you, in addition to providing these free online resources, you also uh, coach and facilitate. Can you explain those services for people who want to learn more? Sure. We are in uh, several states and we work with, uh, it depends on the state uh, in, ter- in terms of the environment. We work f- uh, with parent groups or we help uh, facilitate a parent group or galvanize parent group. We work with legislators, uh, lawmakers, and we largely teach them what is in the schools and why their K through 12 is the way it is. Um, depending on the state, Things are at different levels of intensity, but they're all there. So we show them where the surveys are coming from, where the grants are going, uh, kind of technical stuff like that, but really just who their activists are and how to fight back and psychological tools, strategies. Uh, And we go in and and we work with states for an X amount of time to uh, kind of get them going so that they know how to fight on their own. You ever done anything here in Oregon? I have not, but I would love to uh, go into Oregon. I know that I, I am familiar with the challenges that you all have. It's it's tough in Oregon. <laughs> well, I might have to uh, hit you up for advice down the line as well. Yes, um, please do that. I would love to talk to you offline about that uh, and see what we can do to lend a hand. Uh, we usually go in for several months and uh, help. We try to we try to pick out some low-hanging fruits to find some success and give parents confidence that if you can do it here, you can do it here, you can do it here, and then work work our way up that way. So, um, but yeah, for like you said, you know, uh, as far as the average parent goes, you don't need to bring us into anything to go to our site and download the tools. Our tools are there for you. We make it for you, the average parent. Um, we don't write these tools for. Uh, people who are like myself and Stephanie who are in it all the time. These tools are written for the parent that don't have 10 hours to listen to a podcast or 15 hours to read white papers. It's for the average parent, a working parent that just wants to know what can I do. Uh, With Courage to Have It, the most important thing besides teaching or educating is we always have a call to action. We always try to give parents something to do, not just to read or to absorb because action matters a lot. It has to be action. Um, but we also have Facebook, um, uh, Instagram, Twitter, it's all at courage habit, all our socials and everything else is at courage habit. And then courage is a habit.org is the, is the website. Great. Thank you so much, Alvin. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's really wonderful talking to you, Stephanie. I hope you enjoyed this episode of you must be some kind of therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at sometherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. 
This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.